Hello, my name is Leroy Garcia, and this is Blue Rain Gallery Podcast. Today, we are in the studio with Jim Bogle. Hello, everybody. Kind of a different format than being in, than being in the office studio. Uh, looks beautiful, Jim. Your studio came out wonderful, man. Love Thanks, it. Leroy. It's a lot of hard work. It was. My yeah. son Sage and I, or our son Sage, and Kristen and Grayson, we all put in a bunch of hours, and I'd say Sage and I probably did 90% of the construction. Well, it came out good. You guys did well. Thanks. Looking forward to seeing a lot of great creative works coming out of here over the years. It will. It already Mm -hmm. feels like we've been working in here for years, (laughs) and it's only been a couple of months. Very very cozy. I feel like taking a nap. Yeah. So, um, most people don't realize this, but me and Jim have a lot in common. We are one of 11. 12. You, you're one of 12. I'm one of 11. But he's I am number 11. But he's number 11. Okay, so we're within the realm. Um, how was that growing up in, as in a big family? I you're the baby though, right? I'm the second to the youngest. Okay. So basically, I didn't know it was weird. And you probably have this same thing. Where when you're in the middle of it and you're a child and you're growing up in this big family... That's your normal. That was my normal and my siblings normal. Like we just had our own, basically we had our own, you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts troops. We had our own baseball team because we didn't join up teams. We just (laughs) went to the park and played as a family. Um, But only as like becoming a young adult and getting out there and realizing, you mean everybody doesn't have... 11 siblings, everybody doesn't have eight sisters. This is weird. And the normal, you know, having a couple of siblings is complete opposite. Is complete opposite. Yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty strange, as you would know, looking backwards and thinking, whew. Yeah. And I also, I, I thought something else that uh, was unique and parallel besides the big family, which we're going to talk a little bit more about, but is the ethnicity. Um, your, your father's German descent and your mother yeah. was Hispanic, right? Yeah. So on my mom's side of the family, it's New Mexican, and her maiden name is Blea. Um, well, actually, I have a picture of my grandparents. We'll get it. Real quick. And her. It'll, it'll explain the part of the story that I'm going to tell. <laughs> so these are my New Mexican grandparents. And this was my mom when she was a young lady, probably when my dad fell in love with her. So the thing was, my dad's parents were German immigrants and he, they, a big extended family of Vogels settled in Indiana. And then he enlisted in World War II. And at that time, they didn't have the Air Force. It was the Army Air Corps. Mm-hmm. So he, he got picked to train to be a pilot. And at the time, the Walker Air Base in Roswell, New Mexico, had the longest runways where they would train B-17 pilots, the really big bombers. So this farm boy from Indiana ends up in, to him, it was like a foreign country. Like New Mexico was just weird. Really different different than Indiana, for sure. And so he's training to fly planes. And my mom and her sisters, they were in high school and, and... the, the gist of it was like the principal would say, well, you young ladies need to go dance with the Flyboys, you know, because they're about to go over and serve the country. They may not ever see an American girl again. So my mom and her friends and her sisters would go to these dances at the officer clubs. And uh, they, my dad saw my mom and asked her to dance. And he said he had a really good time. When he wrote a letter back to his brother in Indiana, he said, man... I really, really met this beauty. She was a black-haired, brown-eyed Latin beauty. He says, I really wowed her too, man. We danced all night. I really swept her off her feet. In fact, it went so good. Next time I see her, I'm even going to ask her what her name is. (laughs) And then after that, he served. He actually survived, came back. They got married, and he dragged her off to Indiana. And she lasted about six months. She lasted long enough to get pregnant with my oldest sister. And when didn't she like the climate? Like it was too humidity? wet. Yeah. It was too green, and the sun didn't come out. Right. right. So he said, she told him, "If you want this to last, we got to go back to Roswell and be in the sun." And and that was it. And then my dad became a 
a devoted lover of my mom and New Mexico yeah. for the rest of his life. That's beautiful. Well, the reason I ask that is I, I have the parallel too. My mom is uh, German-Irish descent, and then my dad is Hispanic, but it's kind of reverse. Uh-huh. But it's a, it, the, the stories that we get out of northern New Mexico or from New Mexico are pretty good. Where did you develop your storytelling? Where did you learn of all the cultural stories, the dichos and stuff? Um, a lot of it comes from, from my, my family. Like my mom was a natural storyteller. And my granddad, her dad, like I never knew my other grandparents because they were gone before I ever was born. But he was a, a natural storyteller, slow, you know, deliberate, mm -hmm. um, very proud New Mexican. He made that erroneous thing about telling us, well, you have Spanish blood and you not Mexican. And oh, yeah, yeah. we all know how that goes. But we, we grew up in a neighborhood where we could go down and see our grandparents at their house. Um, and so they had that, there was a propensity to tell stories. And for me, it's, it's like a visual representation of trying to get the story across. Yeah, in your paintings. Yeah. Yes. And I knew early on that I was always gonna be an artist, like as a child and um, my language was drawing mm -hmm. and so that that adapted into so did you start off as a doodler like everybody else no I started off as a feverish um, artist right like, off the bat yeah and I don't personally remember this and, and this is part of the thing about being in a big family which maybe you as an elder of the family you set this tone but see as a recipient a younger child so the older siblings always carry the memories. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they would say, well, when you were little, <laughs> and they would say this. And so I, I absorb these memories about myself, but I don't necessarily remember them. But mm -hmm. the memory is, they would say, we'd all be outside playing. Like all the kids are outside and we're just playing in the yard and bikes going up and down the sidewalk and rolling around in the grass. And then you would jump up and run in the house and grab some paper and a pencil and start drawing because like you would, get an idea or get inspired. I'd have to go draw like a cowboy or a ostrich with its head in the sand or you know, some goofy thing like that. And later on, you know, elementary school and stuff, I do remember like that's what I always wanted to do. And apparently it just started from, you know, pre-memory for me that it was just always needing to draw. And the way I feel about it now, and I think it carried over from then is I get these things in my head, like either it's just a concept or maybe I see something out here that sparks a, a composition. And until I can sit down and draw it and get it out of my head, it rattles around in there. Mm -hmm. And I think that was like the little kid, you know, we're playing and it's like, oh, I, I got to go in real quick. You know, it's almost like having the urgency to go to the bathroom mm -hmm. and you run in and I would get it out of my head and then I could move on. And that's kind of how I even operate today. Like ideas spin in my head, and then when I get them somewhere, I go over and I get the sketchbook out. So you have developed stories, or you, you got into storytelling as a family. How did moving to northern New Mexico, in particular Dixon, uh, have a say in your storytelling? Um, I was really fortunate to make friends with uh, older people, elders and... Like the ones who know the all the stories. viejos and viejas and, and kind of the way it worked out, they were probably happy to see uh, uh, one friend of mine, Mr. Diego, who was also our son's basketball coach. He had coached like three generations of northern New Mexico kids <laughs> in basketball. Um, but he was the Meyer Domo on our acequia. And he's like, you work at home? What's an acequia? Acequia is the irrigation system that runs through the valley and everybody ditches right yeah it's like irrigation ditches that they have a, a point off of each little river where they feed water into the ditch and that's the where the mayordomo comes in yeah and the mayordomo is the ditch boss and it's his responsibility to make sure the water flows for all the people that have rights to the water can water and when it gets bad and there's not enough water he's also the one that has to listen to everybody fight and argue and throw things 
-hmm. And the thing with Mr. Griegos, he figured out pretty quick. He's like, oh, Jim Vogel works, he works for himself. So whenever there was like a beaver dam that needed breaking or, you know, any reason to shut down the water and go fix a hole from a gopher or something, he would come by the studio and he's like, can you help me? And I was like, yeah, sure, I can help you. Because also what it, it served me, because we would walk the ditch together and he would tell me how the system worked and about his experiences. He would point out who maybe would remain nameless, but they steal water. <laughs> he would yep. point out, you know, like where the gopher problems were always going to be and just talk about that. So the, the stories from Mr. Griego uh, yeah. started coming in? Yeah, and just... The fortunate um, opportunity I had to have my studio in an old, in the old plaza area of Dixon in the old Catholic school building. Mm -hmm. So I um, was able to walk to the studio at that time. That's kind of a little city center yeah. of Dixon, isn't it? Yeah, it's, there was the Catholic buildings like the church and the old convent and the old school and parish hall and also the senior citizen center. It was right outside my window. So I could be working in my studio and I'd see every, all the old people gather for lunch and start hanging out. And um, there was always, you know, they were always in the race salon they were always out in the sun, soaking the sun up before it was time to go eat. And some of them were curious enough to wander over and come in the studio and see what I was doing and then so you'd get those old uh, schoolboy stories of getting yeah, smacked yeah. down. And, yeah, yeah, they would point at the Vigas and they'd say, if you climb up there and you look on the top side, I have my initials up there. Uh, but one of the other people that was really important early on and until he passed was this, he was kind of the village clown. His name was Gonito Sanchez. And Gonito was only about four foot, 10 inches tall. And he was a a veteran of the Korean War. He didn't speak English until he got drafted and, and, and then he had to learn English in the army. And he was just full of story. He was a town drunk. You know, mm. when it was okay to call somebody a wino or a drunk, he was a, he he was was a, a town drunk. <laughs> and he had sobered up. Uh, and he was just always full of stories. And the thing about Guanito was, no matter if I was painting a man or a woman, he'd come in and go, oh, that's me, huh? That's me in there. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't. And I would still just, yeah, Gonito, that's you. Said, oh, I could tell. How, did, how was the, tell me about the influence of the Santero or the traditional Spanish art that's, here. How did that affect you? So I, um, again, an old man, this friend of mine, uh, he became a friend of mine, Eddie, Eddie Johnson or Johnson he passed he was, away recently he right? passed away this year yeah. he was a carver and he grew up in Velarde he was born down in Velarde which is like 10 miles away um, and just a fantastic artist fantastic carver and what he loved to do he he moved to California and lived there but he would come out to New Mexico every summer in his grandmother's house and and uh, see all his cousins and friends and he was real gregarious he could just walk up to anybody and become their friend and one day he just came to the old catholic school building he's like what are you doing in here who who are you what's going on in here and uh so i showed him what i did and he happened to have a a bulto a carving that he was working on in his truck and he brought it in and showed me and we just became fast friends and then he invited me to uh, carving sessions that he would have at his, his little house. And he would invite, you know, like a dozen of the Santeros local guys from, you know, northern New Mexico. And they would bring whatever piece they're working on and they would just carve in his patio and he'd cook up hot dogs and serve beer. And uh, usually I would just draw. I would draw these guys working. And they would just shoot the breeze and, and some more stories, huh? Yeah, gossip, <laughs> gossip about the Spanish market people, clientels, and participants. And well, that, that explains how I was. Uh, when, uh, Eddie used to come and visit us at the LA Art Show. 
Uh -huh. I'm like, what the heck are you doing in California? Yeah. Every year, it's a, I didn't realize he lived there. Yeah. <laughs> and Eddie had this big old head of white hair, so you could see him coming a mile away because nobody looked like Eddie Johnson. Yeah. A funny thing that, so his mom, when he was a child, they moved to California. And from what I understand, I think his, his mom married a man named Johnson. He got adopted by him. And as an adult, older, like retired adult, he would came, came back to New Mexico. And he met this guy here that had a real similar style as his carving. And it looked really almost like they were copying each other. And it was this, for New Mexico, a very famous Santero named Horacio Valdez. Mm -hmm. And Horacio, you know, his collections are in museums. And um, Eddie was like, man, we're really similar. They were even wearing like the same crucifix on a gold chain the day they met. And they start talking. And in a classic Northern New Mexico way, they figure out they were half brothers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and shortly after that, they just started to get to know each other and Horacio passed. His son-in-law, um, Jacob, who was another Santero that lived here in Dixon, my age, and he, we would visit. And he, he was an, is an amazing carver, and he kind of helped me. He pushed me a little bit to pick up a knife and carve. Eddie insisted I carve. And that's why now, um, you look at some things, of my pieces. You look at things more three-dimensionally at times yeah. now because of that. Right? Yeah. And then on some of my pieces, like the golden catch that we just completed, that you just found a home for, there's a little golden trout on top that I had carved, and Kristen gold leafed it and we mounted it on the frame. Yeah. I think when, when I think about you, Jim, I, I think about a, a cultural preservationist um, because a lot of scenes of Northern New Mexico that you're painting are scenes that I relate to as a child, but they're, they're disappearing quick. Yeah. And it's probably because of the stories you're getting out of the valley and, yeah. and the participation with the Hispanic culture in particular here in, in the valley. But that's that's pretty cool stuff. Thanks. I like to think of it. Um, I've been told that like some of the stuff I paint is nostalgic. Mm -hmm. and nostalgic nostalgia isn't necessarily a healthy um, perspective. Right. It's taking the past and painting it all happy, and forgetting the hard part. Mm -hmm. And so what I like to think is I I don't paint nostalgia. I try to paint. Um, what could be a universal truth that's still here, but it might be cloaked in a past time. Right. And so like a lot of the stuff that has to do with like the landscape and the acequias and watering and growing food here, um, people might think that that's a, a bygone era, but if you look close- It's still going. It's still happening. Mm -hmm. And there's still people, you know, like our friends and neighbors that take their produce from here down to Santa Fe every Saturday and actually make a living at Santa Fe Farmer's Market right next to Blue Rain Gallery. Isn't that amazing? That's a, that's a beautiful yeah. thing. Um, I, I so grew up uh, my, with that culture. My, my grandfather was a mayordomo, and uh, we did all that irrigation of all the alfalfa pastures and uh -huh. uh, raising our own food and uh, have appreciation. In fact, the first painting I ever bought from you was Seasons of the Asequia. Oh, yeah. It was a smaller one. It was the, the study, study to the big one. You know? Yeah. But it, it so reminded me of culturally how I was raised. And, uh, yeah. And it's, it's one of my favorite paintings. hangs Thank by you. my room. Uh, I, uh, I like that, the concept in that one, too, of like it's a sequential thing, you know, showing time passing mm -hmm. with yes. the flow of the water through the ditch and the lack of the water in the ditch and how yeah. it gets there. And, a beautiful painting. Well, I'm glad it's in your collection. <laughs> I have some good pieces of yours. Um, let's talk about uh, the word collaboration as it pertains to you. Okay. Um, I do everything myself. No, just kidding. The collaboration, the most prominent one and, and that comes out of here is between Kristen, my wife, and I. And it stems from like when I initially wanted to start painting again. And we could get into that origin story later about coming back to painting. But 
I initially thought, I don't paint, I mean, I don't see in, in squares and rectangles. I'm not going to paint in squares and rectangles. So initially, remember, like, my paintings were yeah, they're irregular shapes. Asymmetric. And I had to, I worked with the composition to get the shape of the panel. And so would you construct the panel first and then I think would, about the shape? Or well, I would do the drawing first and develop where the lines oh. should go and then okay. hand that off to a woodworker that would make the panel and the frame for it because it, you take a curved panel to a frame shop and they can't frame it. Yeah, it has to be because so it has to be somebody, yeah, mm -hmm. somebody that solves problems rather than just puts a box on. And, and then Kristen and I started talking about it and Kristen was doing her thing with like salvage art, taking old architectural remnants and putting them together into a new Like old piece. ceiling tiles. Ceiling or tiles. Old frames. Uh, ornate ornate uh, panels, ornate uh, trim pieces. And she, yeah, she would make sconces or baskets that are actually big steel tin baskets. Um, so the idea of like not letting the, the rectangle constrain my painting and I want my painting to flow then it became more of well I want we would like the frame to be a part of the painting help tell the story of the painting help reinforce the composition more so than this very slim contemporary like non-frame right um, and Kristen was up for the task like she just would see um, she would see potential like gold in a piece of wood that we'd find in the arroyo. And so consequently, when you pull up here to the studio, you see like a lot of piles of things, piles of rusty stuff, piles of stacks of old wood, seems broken like furniture. A, seems like a common theme around here with a lot of artists that think about Nicolas. Yeah, Nicolas <laughs> He's got way more That's a resources yeah. than us. You might call it a junkyard. <laughs> He wouldn't, and neither would I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we've traded junk before. Uh, so it, it kind of transformed from worrying about the shapes being part of the composition to how do we take the image and not just contain it within something, but expand the idea into something that contains it. The frame becomes a part of the composition. I noticed you uh, found a couple old lamps and then uh, created panels to fit in where the, yeah. the glass panels would be. Um, if you get a chance, go to the website and uh, look under Jim Vogel. You'll see some really cool things of what he's talking about. Doing those lanterns was, even though they're flat panels, it became a, th a 360, a three-dimensional composition. Um, Pretty cool. And, and again, you have to think, I had to think all in the round rather mm -hmm. than just flat yeah but we always we pick stuff up and hold on to it until it becomes part of the frame well what i see uh, um, in the both of you you're both re refined uh kristen's knowledge of materials and in how to bring out the beauty of through the old uh is amazing thank um, you and so. you may have planned on asking me this but i'll answer it without the question because <laughs> people ask is well what comes first the the frame thing like does Kristen tell you what the frame's going to be or do you tell her what the piece is going to be and what colors and it has actually now become both ways <laughs> where sometimes she'll find something and she go this would be pretty cool for something like not even saying what the topic is but we need to save this right and sometimes it sits around for years and like with the golden catch um, I knew I wanted to do a painting of the Box Canyon secret fishing hole where, where we go. And initially I thought it would be flat. And she had this three-sided mirror frame, antique frame, um, probably for six or eight years. And she, when I told her I was going to do the Golden Catch, she's like, I know what we need to do. And she goes to reach for this frame and then I like click, I know what she's gonna say because the sides of the frame, the, the two side like panels a box, right? make a box. And that was That's one of those times where all of it, like there wasn't the frame, the frame was there before the painting. Mm -hmm. But in talking about it, we both like came to this point that that's gonna be it. Well, 
we're we're excited for more years of this because this last show was really fun. And, uh, Thanks. I, I feel like it was the first show to come out of this studio. Mm -hmm. In fact, we finished building this studio in the middle of August. We actually moved in without our uh, final Permits. inspection, <laughs> and and uh, we couldn't wait because we had a show scheduled at the end of October, and I had pushed it back. I told you, Leroy, it's like. I know. I need, a, I need another mic. I tried not to bother you at all. Uh -huh. I just give you the space you need. And I kept telling myself and Sage, it's like we're working on it, you know, like the physical structure mm -hmm. in June. I'm like, we'll be done by the end of July and I'll have plenty of time. And then obviously it's not going to be the end of July and then it's into August. And then we just had to hit the ground running. So those 10 pieces for that show came out of here. Right on. Like we finished August 14th and we started working August 15th inside. <laughs> And it was great. And then a week or two later, the inspector comes by and instead of inspecting the place, he was like, oh, what are you working on? And <laughs> oh, this is great. And he got to get a little preview of the show. Yeah. Well, I think that's great. I, and uh, speaking of collaboration, um, tell me about how it was working with your son on developing the ideas behind the, the circus series that you had. Yeah, that In fact, was... tell us the whole story of the circus okay. as well. So I'll try to make it pretty short because I could talk for a long time about it. But early on, uh, quite a few years ago, because we did the first Dr. Alosio. Is it four or five? Four or five years ago. So prior to that, I had done a couple of little pieces. There was a weird music box. It was a cigar box that I painted this weird character on. And I called him Dr. Alosio. And I was literally spelling out crazy, loco, L-O-C-O. And I just thought it was funny. And it turns out that Elocio is actually like an archaic Spanish word for recreational time. Mm. But not just like sit around not doing anything, but like storytelling. Mm. Particularly like having a drink and telling a story about something. And it's like, well, holy crap, that's Dr. Elocio. That's what he does is he tells stories and gathers stories and he takes other people's stories and incorporates them. And our son Sage, who is a natural born writer, and he actually worked at it very hard too, um, he, he liked like that seed of this idea of this kind of a, a master of, of people's stories. Like he, he doesn't necessarily have his own story and he doesn't want one. He wants to take yours and incorporate it into his bag of stories that he travels the world with. So what's the best way to do that? Well, you have a circus. And then that gives you the cover. You mm. get to travel the world with your show that everybody wants to come and see. And while you're doing your show, you kind of harvest from people and you take from them what you want. And he's this universal, like, he's not a bad person. He's not a good person. He's just kind of a mixer. He likes to make things happen. So, when we conceived the idea of doing a circus show, I, and you'll remember this, I had big, big plans, and it was a great show. And the story developed, and Sage had the skeleton of the story, the outline of it, but it wasn't fleshed out to a complete story. So this and is the first show? The first show. Yeah. So we did all the pieces we could do, and they were great, and it was one of the earlier times where Kristen and I collaborated on the framing where we took that sensation of being on a sideshow and built frames around that. Yeah. And, uh, and we depicted parts of the circus story. And the show was great when we went to the gallery, went to Blue Rain, and at that time you were on Lincoln Street. Mm -hmm. We had jugglers, we had tumblers, we had People stilt walkers. And picture that inside the gallery with a multi-thousand dollar Preston Siegelterry on a pedestal <laughs> right here. And there's a guy doing tumbling, right? And flying in the air and juggling right there. And well, you know, not one, per but not one piece was broken. Not so one good. piece was that, broken. That was <laughs> and I think he sold almost every piece of the circus show. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, great hit, great hit. And that was the first round and I was exhausted from it. And so it took a couple of years and Sage kept working on the story. And he went to Spain and, and taught English there. And I worked on a couple other shows. Kristen and I did shows in between, but we were still developing 
because it was such a rich visual story. Mm -hmm. There were more things I wanted to paint. And so this last year, 2019, we decided we were going to bring Dr. Alosio back and, and finalize the show. And, and Sage's story was fleshed out, really solid. And ended up in print. He did a short run of a well-illustrated story, <laughs> fantastic illustrations, compliments of his father. I think that little, little short run sold out pretty quick. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he's learning to, like, he wants to refine it even more, edit it, um, find a, a publisher to put it out there once he, he feels comfortable with the polish. There'll be uh, fantastic full-color illustrations again in there. <laughs> Good um, thing he has connections. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, Dr. Elosio still lives. He's out there somewhere on the train tracks. Um, in some of your works, I've also noted uh, you always have a line, uh, at least that I interpret, that's based on, on faith. Um, Maybe not exactly pertain to the Catholic religion, but on faith. And uh, I say that because a, a few of the paintings I have of yours in my collection are all faith-based. Uh -huh. In fact, three of them are. I have the Stations yeah. of the Cross and, yeah. and a couple other uh, scenes. I have the first family where they're kneeling at, you know, during in the, Mass. In the church, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, those, those have always been really strong to me. Um, did, did you uh, develop those type of ideas more here in northern New Mexico or how you were raised at home? It's both. So no surprise once you find out that there's 12 children in a family, they're probably Catholic or, or Mormon. they're Mormons. Yeah. So we were raised Catholic. And uh, um, there, there's just no way of escaping the influence of the faith you're raised in. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying you have to escape it. Right. But it's, it comes to the point, and the way I describe myself is that I'm culturally Catholic. And in the sense that it influences the way I see certain human elements. And then because I'm in northern New Mexico and because I love New Mexico and I'm a jealous New Mexican, like I talked about it like where New Mexico's kind of like my mom and I'm a jealous son and sometimes I think certain people don't deserve New Mexico but they're here and we welcome them anyway but that also has so it's that the Catholicism laid on top of the New Mexicanism plus my individual take on things because I'm pretty sure um, I have a better view than maybe some other people like that's just the, I have it enough like, ego that I say that. It seems like faith is disappearing. So anybody's capturing, I, I pay attention. Uh, well, so then important. I, it, it's a touchy thing, people's religion or faith, because what I think, and this is what I, I try to do, is it may look like I'm painting Catholic New Mexico, but what I hope is it's a universal, a universal need in a, in humanity to have a belief in something greater than us. Yeah. So if I do my job right, it doesn't matter if it's the interior of an old New Mexican church or if it's outside along a great you know, river, compelling somebody to connect to it, even though they may not personally experience a Catholic mass or walking the valleys of Northern New Mexico. Well, I, I appreciate the fact that you've uh, outlined the core, which is faith, and that right. transcends all religions, and that's, that's the, actually right. the common tie. And I, I hope that it, it's universal. Yeah, I believe it is, and and it it's important whether you believe in. The reason I, I I asked that is growing up in New Mexico, and I don't know if it was like this for you in the, growing up in southern New Mexico, but <laughs> believe it or not, uh, in kindergarten all the way through second grade, we were we were we were taught all the the Catholic stories and uh -huh. the songs and stuff in school in uh -huh. public school <laughs> in public school in public school and or, or at least they'd bring in people to give us like story hour and stuff uh -huh. and and so we'd get those stories and i, I was wondering if you had any influence like that as well uh, or have any memories of that no not in the public school the funny thing is um all of my siblings up to me 
at least started and a great part of them finished school in the Catholic school. Like catechism or? Well, no, ca well, catechism, but a Catholic school. Oh, a Catholic school. Okay. Yeah. So my parents enrolled all the kids in St. Peter's Catholic school. And some of them, you know, my older siblings, they went K through 12. And then when I was supposed to start, the school, the, the Catholic school was shutting down. And I, I kind of joke, I don't really know if this is true or not. I didn't go to kindergarten. And I think probably what it was is there wasn't enough kids to have a new kindergarten class at St. Peter's. Mm. So they just skipped it. But I joked that it's like my mom looked at me one day and said, how old are you? And I said, I'm five. And she's like, oh, you should be in kindergarten. She goes, oh, that's okay. Well, we'll just wait till next year and start you in first grade. <laughs> um, so I started first grade at the public school that was only a block from our house. And you got to imagine like the, the Catholic kids walking past the public school to go to the Catholic school like six blocks away. And all the stories about public school is bad, you know, like, mm -hmm. and we're talking about like, what, th third graders are going to knife you? I don't really, that didn't happen. Yeah. But just this idea that like, cat, like Catholic school is a safe zone. Public school is open for interpretation. <laughs> yeah. So I, I started, I was the first Vogel kid to start public school and I did fine. It, I think you turned out okay. Yeah. I think your mom made a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> so we did still go like, at, and then at that point they had catechism or we called it um, CCD mm -hmm. and it was Sunday school and we suffered through that. <laughs> um, the one thing I actually remember about this, which is totally unrelated, is that we're in the old classrooms of the school that they shut down. And so it's almost like they just walked away and and just left the stuff there. Well, there was a newspaper sitting there on one of the desks and the headline was, Nixon is impeached. And had I had a presence of mind to grab that newspaper, oh, save that. I could have put it on eBay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's ironic is you ended up from one school to another one over here in, yeah. in Dixon, right? And, so another Catholic funny. school that had shut down. And One last thing we wanna cover, I think, because uh, we, Jim's right, we could go on for days with stories um, of northern New Mexico or influences. Um, the development of your style of painting. Uh, now, let's start here. Let's start. Where did you and Kristen meet? Okay, we met at the Colorado Institute of Art in Denver. And what were you studying? Uh, graphic design. Mm -hmm. So it was a commercial art school. It was right. like a trade school for learning to do graphic design and commercial illustration. Um, and the reason I was there is because, like I said, I always knew I wanted to be an artist. Like pre-memory, I am going to be an artist. And through getting up in the later years in high school, you know, people are like, well, that's, that's cute, but you also need it. You should have a job. You need a career. Like being an artist is nice, but you need a career. And growing up in Roswell, there were examples of thriving uh, fine artists, you know, Peter Hurd, Henrietta, his wife, Henrietta Wyeth, um, Luis Jimenez, this fantastic sculptor. There was mm -hmm. the Artist in Residence program where professional artists from all over the world would come to little Podunk Roswell to work. But I still bought into that thing. It's like, yeah, art's cute, but you need a job. Well, the closest career I could think would be graphic, graphic design. So went there, met Kristen. It was the best part of going to that school. Um, learned the trade, you know, and then when we came out, uh, we moved to Dallas with a friend of ours and worked within the design field. Um, I've worked for small firms that would do graphic design for like professional sports teams and real estate development and package design, you know, like, oh, we've got this new lotion. What is it supposed to look like? Um, and I did fine, like I did well. I applied my talents to that, but I was always dissatisfied. And then Kristen is pregnant with our first child. And I realized it's like, I don't, like I need to keep painting. I need to start painting again, just for my sanity. Like doing this commercial art doesn't satisfy myself. It satisfies a client's need. 
So I started painting in the evenings or on weekends. And um, I actually remember this, and maybe Kristen doesn't know this until she watches this podcast, but there was a time she left the house, it was probably a Saturday, and Grayson, our, so we had our first son, and he's super active from the beginning. And I wanted to get a little work done on a painting, but Grayson woke up from his nap. And I had him on my hip, and I thought, well, I'll just finish what I'm doing. And I lean over to my uh, palette, and I have cadmium yellow, which is poisonous. Yeah. Like, that's a heavy metal. And I'm like this with Grayson, and I'm, I'm dabbing cadmium yellow on my brush, and I look over, and he's got cadmium yellow in his <laughs> little <laughs> tiny fist because he's scraped it off of the painting. And he's like this with just yellow squirty. I'm just like... Oh, all I can see is like a little kid just, so I get his wrist and I run and so averted that, you know, heavy metal poisoning of all the sun, but I just kept painting in my spare time. And then in the meantime, we moved back to Colorado to be close to her parents. Our second son, Sage, is born. We want them to be close to their grandparents. Um, And I get, you know, I keep working within the design field and I, uh, get in with this really great firm, Vermilion Design, and a great boss, Bob Morehouse. And we work well together, and we have great clients, a, a good mix of commercial clients and nonprofits that, that he has um, brought together. And I'm doing great, and we're, our family's growing, and, and I'm on track, right? Like, I'm on the right track. I have a career that I'm succeeding at, and our children are healthy and we're fortunate enough that Kristen could stay home and raise the kids because she was also in design and we chose to have one of us stay home and the reality of you know the times and now is that the man is going to make more money doing the same job and she's a better full-time parent than I am (laughs) (laughs) she has skills um so she's staying at home with the kids and but I keep painting and entering little shows on the side, group shows in Colorado, and um, just to keep my sanity. And then my boss offers me a partnership. He says, this, we've worked well for years together. This is going well. You know, at that point, I was like the art director, not just the designer. I was helping other graphic designers do a good job, I hope. Um, but anyway, it was, it was going well. And, and I was really good at being a commercial artist. And he offered me the partnership. And I go home and I tell Kristen and we talk about it. And it's like, that's the responsible thing to do. And it's like, yeah, it is. You know, it's like, at that point, it's, it's the next step to take. And so I go back and I tell Bob, all right, we're gonna accept. And he's like, great, he's so excited. I'm not excited. I actually feel like this bad pain in my gut. And Kristen sees it, right? You know, and she knows. And she says, well, what do you really want to do? And I'm like, I want, I want to paint. I just want to paint. And I want to go back to New Mexico and raise our kids here and, and do what I want from my heart. And the way I thought of it is I can work a year in graphic design and do some good work, but I'm creating garbage, basically. I create a box for this widget that looks good to get you to buy the widget, and they print 50,000 of those boxes and they all go in the trash in the end. Or I could do a painting and spend the same amount of time on one painting, and if it's good enough, somebody will buy it enough to give it a home and love it and take care of it forever. And so when Kristen and I and went to meet with Bob to talk about how to form a partnership, I said, you know, instead of the partnership thing, what I'd like to do is quit. <laughs> but I want to quit in slow motion. So I want to cut back like a, a day. transition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And have one day a week at home. And then I'll take two days a week and paint. And he was gracious enough and knew that that was what I needed to do, that he helped accommodate that to happen. Glad you, you know, brought that me, up. Me too. Yeah, that's important. 
Um, so the so you became more full time painter as you transitioned uh -huh. out. Uh, when I met you, you were showing a Klein gallery. Was that your first gallery? It was my first gallery in New Mexico. In Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. And um, Kim Wiggins, who's another New Mexican painter, is from Roswell, and he happened to be married to my little sister Valerie's best friend from high school. Oh, so we visited like one of our trips to Roswell, and uh, he had been with Jeff Klein for years and he offered an introduction and at this point I was just doing group shows in Colorado so um, he, he made the introduction I went to meet Jeff Klein uh, showed him my portfolio and he did a group show in the summer I can't I'm not good with years but just like maybe <laughs> 97 20 years ago 98 maybe mm -hmm. and it went good and then the next one went good and we had a couple of good runs and then that was the sign it was like i just we gotta go we gotta do it now or it won't happen and uh one of the things that jeff klein taught me was to be a professional artist you have to produce work it's one thing to be a good artist that if I produce something great for you and I say, Leroy, here's this one painting I've worked on for three years, sell it. And you're like, I need a body of work, Jim. And yeah. that's what Jeff Klein taught me. You can't just be a good artist. You have to be a professional artist. You have to do this with a commitment to do a body of work and take it seriously. It's not a hobby. And the other thing that Jeff Klein taught me is uh, or about himself and it was I would rather sell dead artist art because two things don't tell me his ego is one of them <laughs> dead artists don't argue with the gallerist and you don't have to split the commission with the dead artist and he says but i'll i'll still show you <laughs> um i didn't argue much with him and i don't argue much with you oh we we have a good relationship yeah i try to give space um so that was that was how i we jumped ship basically from the commercial art world and Sold our house in Colorado, moved down here into a drafty old adobe and remodeled that and then raised our kids here. Was it Dixon? It was Did in Dixon, it? right? Yeah. yeah. Was it down by the schoolhouse? Yeah, down on the old plaza. And now Sage lives down there and owns an old drafty <laughs> adobe on the plaza. That's awesome. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, like Klein, we, I worked with him or showed with him for two years and he wanted to retire, Jeff Sr., and his son took over. And he didn't have the same passion and capacity. Um, and Kristen, at the time, you were showing, your gallery was in Taos. Yeah. And you were really devoted to doing... The native stuff. Probably. Yeah, native stuff, but also just, you know, your Leroy Garcia is going to, like, have the best gallery not just in taos but in new mexico <laughs> you know like you were not satisfied just to be called the taos gallery you want yeah. and you're you're good at it um so Kristen is saying you know like jim you should start looking around because this thing with jeff jr is not going well and i'm like hey yeah you're loyal too that's yeah. the problem right so and and at the same time she's working in taos part-time at the at the tasting room under Ogilvy's, which is oh, yeah, the Gorge Bridge. That. Yeah, yeah. Or the Gorge Bar. That's been a long time. So she would take her lunch break at the La Chiripada tasting room and walk over and walk to your gallery. And she'd come back and say, you know, Blue Rain, they got some nice stuff. They do, they, they're doing it good. And, and then uh, um, Peter, and he likes to, to, you know, say he brought me to you to introduce um, but I think it was Tony Abeda that did that. Well, Tony, oh yeah, Tony was with mm -hmm. Klein. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he went to you first. Yeah. And and then, uh, so Tony must have talked to Peter and you about it. Mm -hmm. And then Kristen talked to me about you guys. And then I actually called Tony. And that said, sounds what like you... uh, right about our, our major expansion in Taos where we took over the two stories yeah. of that one building. Yeah. And then I called Tony and asked him, and he's like, you know, they're, He's, he's basically said, you know, you're driven to do the best you can. And they're a commercially successful gallery. 
And one of the things, like this is the advice to the future not becoming artists, is you have to be careful of what I call vanity galleries. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. people that love the art world so much that they'll buy themselves into a gallery because they want to either be an artist or they want to be a gallerist. And they just love that, the fun of it, you know, the openings and meeting artists and rubbing elbows and seeing beautiful art every day, but they have no idea how to run a gallery. Oh, it's harder than it looks, that's yeah. for sure. And expensive. <laughs> and and if, if they don't have to make money at it, they may not be that good at it. Right. Um, and that's to me is a vanity gallery. Yeah. Whether they're driven by their own art. There's a lot of those. Uh, they're, yeah. Um, so I wanted to be wary of that. And, uh, and you know, like you and Peter came to the old Catholic school building. We sat and talked. It was kind of like a dance. It's like, <laughs> why do you feel about this? You know, like how, what happens when this happens and that kind of thing. And uh, we shook hands. We've never had a contract. People ask, you know, like, do you have a contract? It's like, no, like I agree with Leroy. We shook hands. And if we have a disagreement, we talk about and it. And we talk about we it. We figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been what, 18 years? It's been a, it's been a journey and it's, it's uh, I'm looking forward to the next 18. Cause Me too. <laughs> I think you're gonna even more explode. I, I think you're, uh, obviously you've already been awarded the governor's award, but you, you are a treasure of New Mexico. Oh, thank you. Hope Lee you Lee. realize that. Well, I think that'll do for today. I'd like to thank everybody for watching uh, Blue Rain's podcast. I'd like to encourage you to sign up if you can on YouTube or iTunes or wherever we're listed. Um, if you're unsure where to go, you can always go to our website, BlueRainGallery.com, and go under our blog section, and you will find the podcast there. Jim, thank you for your time and your beautiful studio, and thank much you, success Leroy. to your future. Thank you, Leah. <laughs> <laughs>